I don't know about you, but uh, when I hear the word trauma, I don't get really excited about talking about it. It's not one of those topics that I want to run towards. I don't think that in today's day and age, talking about trauma and talking about problems and talking about the challenges that we have is something that is cool, it's sexy, it's fun, uh, and it's probably not something that we lean into a lot. But when we've dealt with trauma, whether it's trauma with a big T or trauma with a little T, we start to heal. Now, for those of you who have listened to the podcast for any period of time, you know that the premise of the podcast is to help you to become a more evolved human being. More specifically, it's about taking a look at your life, where you're currently at, where you have been, and then carefully curating and crafting a life that is more evolved than it was before, something that has improved. And my observation over the years is that I think a lot of people mean well. They strive. They try to improve. Not everybody. And I think you run into some of those people as you're driving on the road and you get cut off and they flip you off as they're rushing to Starbucks to get their pink drink to demand that it's made faster. Maybe those people aren't the type of people that are listening to the podcast. And we may have lost some of you just now, as I said that. But I think that in general, there are people out there, yourself included, who are trying to improve themselves. And you found along the way that there are some things, whether it's big T or little t trauma that have happened in the past that you've had to address and deal with. Now, as you know, avoiding dealing with some of your problems in the past is the best way to stay stuck. I read something recently that said that one of the biggest mistakes that we make as human beings is that we assume that our previous frame of reference, that the life we've lived is a great model to frame our future life off of. I don't know why that hit me in the way that it did, but it hit me to the point where I thought, wow, I need to pause and I need to take a look at how I have viewed just about everything in life and question whether or not my former frame of reference still makes sense. Today, we're excited to be joined by a former guest and a good friend who's coming on to talk not only about trauma and how we work through and overcome trauma, whether it's with a big T or a little T, but we're going to talk about what it is that she's doing today, what her personal growth and evolution has looked like, all that and much more on today's episode of The Evolved Man. Welcome to The Evolved Man, where we are at war with the mediocrity of modern man. The Evolved Man is for men like you who are willing to be strong, open, and aggressive learners. Men who are not afraid to disrupt and change. It's time we ditch the current conventional idea that we devolve with age that the dad bod is our destiny and that the glory days are behind us. Your best isn't behind you. And I'm here to provide you with practical tools, a few tips and tricks, and everyday wisdom to help you evolve into your highest form. Strong, lean, smart, educated, and emotionally intelligent. Now, let's go to war. 
Welcome back to The Evolved Man, where we are at war with the mediocrity of modern man. Today's guest is a previous guest who you can find her first episode on The Evolved Man 15. She's a trauma coach, a massage therapist, a yoga instructor, a mother, and many more things, but just really an all-around great person. Kim Wells, welcome back. Thank you for having me, Steve. It is always such a pleasure to be with you, whether it's on the podcast or it's seeing you in person. I really am grateful for being here. I'm glad you could come into the studio. This is your first time in studio. Last time we uh, had the podcast, we were remote and uh, it's your first time in studio. And I've got to say, you're the first person coming in studio that has sat across from me in a blanket. (laughs) That was the first thing I requested. You needed a blanket for my lap. You got your your comfy little blanket. Are you are are you comfortable? Yeah, I'm very comfortable. I know. Yes, the studio space is gorgeous, but there is something so special about being in person. And I think we were just coming off of some of the COVID stuff before, and so having the opportunity to be in person is such a blessing. Yeah, you made it on episode 15, which is uh, one of our early episodes. I was joking with a friend the other day, uh, Casey Ruff, who hosts uh, the wildly successful Boundless Body Radio. Mm -hmm. And he went back and listened to, I believe it was episode two that we did with our good friend John Cottrell, because John was coming on Casey's uh, podcast. And he says, hey, have you listened to that podcast? I said, man, I got to be honest. I wanted to leave some of those early podcasts way in the past and never listen to them again. (laughs) He says, we've come a long way, buddy. So you came in uh, episode 15 and it was great to, uh, to talk about some of the things that you were doing at the time. I believe at the time you were hosting something on your social media that was kind of like a mini podcast called fabulous female Fridays. Life has grown and evolved uh, since then. And today you're sitting here with one of my favorite blankets. It's the Pendleton uh, fleece blanket. And I think I was telling you before. So Pendleton is a company that uh, I've known ever since I was a little kid, they were, um, you know, great uh, woolen <laughs> mill type company. And they, there's a history there with uh, Pendleton and my family. In fact, my dad, when he was younger, he always wanted a Pendleton shirt. Like that was the thing for you. It yeah, was, what yeah. was the thing when you were? Well, okay. When you asked me that question, it shot me back to being in high school, okay. which, which all I wanted was Abercrombie clothes. Oh, there you go. That yeah. was, I wanted to walk into the dark store with the over fragrance and I wanted to spend the $50 on this super cheap light t-shirt. It was so much money. <laughs> so much money. I, I went into an Abercrombie. I can't remember the number of times. And uh-huh. here's what always blew me away with Abercrombie. Yeah. You're right. It was dark. Mm-hmm. I, why, why was it so dark? I can't figure out why it was so dark, No idea. but why was the fragrance at the level that it was at, I would, I'd get a headache going in there. I, I remember a couple of times my wife and I going in there because Abercrombie, I'm a little bit older than you are. And so Abercrombie was uh, not really my thing growing up. It okay. was something that came out a little bit later. And I think I owned a couple of Abercrombie shirts, but Danielle and I walked in there uh, maybe two or three times together. Mm-hmm. I got a headache almost every single time. Mm-hmm. And the the scent would just overwhelm <laughs> me. The funny thing about Abercrombie is years ago, it yeah. was an outdoor outfitter. So they used to make boats. They used to sell yeah. like all kinds of outdoor stuff. Well, um, Pendleton, same type of thing, outdoor stuff. When my dad was a kid, he wanted a Pendleton shirt. And I don't 
believe that my my grandparents could afford it at the time, but I think my grandpa had a jacket or something that was Pendleton. So my grandma went out, bought a shirt that looked like a Pendleton shirt, mm-hmm. cut the tag out, and sewed it in. <laughs> it was pretty ingenious. Uh-huh. So there's, so there's when a did history. your grandpa find that out, though? Oh, I think he was in on the plan. He was in yeah. on the plan. Okay, yeah. okay. I think he was, he was in on it. <laughs> and I think my mom and dad tried to do that to my older brother, uh, and maybe both of my older brothers, because I mean, you know how it is when you're when you're young and married and got young kids. Yeah, you're not rolling in the dough. At least they weren't, and we weren't. So, I think they tried to pass that off to uh, uh, to my <laughs> brothers, uh, or we would go to trips to Tijuana. Uh, and just buy the knockoff stuff. Like for me, it was gas right. or Gucci. Mm-hmm. I remember owning this fabulous Gucci watch when I was a kid and it was anything but. Gucci. And it was not Gucci. No, it was too I, funny. Yeah. I remember going to New York and getting some great knockoff things off the street, you know, and it was, it's super fun. And But it is, I think it is interesting. There's something though, when you said that, like, what were the things that you were interested in? When I look back on that time, it was and I, and I think I put myself back in that mind. There was something so interesting about wanting what everybody else viewed as important yeah, and valuable. Yeah. So even though if my mom could have the conversation, you know, my mom was like, this doesn't make any sense. I can buy you three shirts at this other store and they're probably better quality, but I wanted the, I wanted the name right across my chest and I wanted to fit right in. And I wanted to be cool. Like all the other kids at school and it's just really incredible sometimes that those things that we really can be a status symbol, whether you're you know, 15 and you're in high school or yeah. we're older as adults, like those things. And it's like, it's more of a curiosity. Like I get curious with myself, like, why was it so important? Why did I want to just blend in so seamlessly? Why was that so valuable to me then? And like, how does that translate to us now? You know? Yeah. It's an interesting uh, psychological experiment to go through and to question, why did we do that? But then uh, what are we doing right now? Mm -hmm. Um, I, I, it had something funny pull up on TikTok and TikTok's probably become my favorite platform to play around on just because of the way that the algorithm works. It pumps out more and more and more stuff relative to what you watch right yeah so i get massive amounts of cooking information or <laughs> uh funny kids saying funny things yeah. or um i've been dying on this guy that just randomly walks up to people and passes gas and just stares at them in, in, in the eyes terrible. and so then i get more of that which is horrible but uh my son it is, makes me laugh my son is seven that's something my son does good, <laughs> he good. just did that to me last night he, like turned around and Asked him gas and was giggling so hard. And I was, and I looked at him, I was like, you just, he's like, whoever smelled it, tell you. Like, he just thought he was the funniest little kid ever. Well, just know that, uh, so he's seven, I'm 47. (laughs) So 40 years later, it's still funny. TikTok the other day showed a video where it was uh, a a man and a woman that were dating is what it looked like. And she said, hey, what's your favorite uh, Christmas movie? And the guy says, oh, Die Hard. And before you tell me that it's not a Christmas movie, and she interrupts him, she says, well, no, 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 no. I don't really care. I just didn't realize you were lame. And he goes, oh, yeah, totally. I'm super lame. Yeah. Wow. I didn't realize you had nothing going on in your life. And you were probably going to tell me that it's a Christmas movie because of this and this. And you probably are saying that so that it makes you uh, be perceived as kind of edgy. 
yeah, you're right. I really do have nothing going on in my life. And I do want to be perceived as edgy. And I just say that because I don't think anybody's going to remember me when I die. And this is my way of sounding important. And I died laughing watching this whole skit. It was just like this honest internal monologue, right? If we we didn't lie to ourselves, this is what would come out. And we all have that throughout life, right? When we were kids, we're probably not as aware of it as we are when we're older, uh, that there are things that we do to gain acceptance in a group or in a tribe. And there are things that we do to make ourselves feel a little bit better. Now, I believe that some of those things started when we were younger and some of those things come about as we pick up experience in life. Tell me, what is it? Now, you work with people helping them to overcome trauma, right? Yeah. yeah. So talk a little bit about how you're helping people to coach them through that. Walk us through just a little bit of the process that you're going through. Yeah. Well, I think with most of us, they, we just have, there's life on us. And I think sometimes I specifically remember, you know, being in college and studying psychology and I've, I've just loved, I love the way that the brain works. And I you love, have your bachelor's in psychology. Yeah, right? that's, yeah, that's yeah. what I went to school for. And, but I was always so drawn to it because I love the way that people think on all different levels and all different capacities, just the power of the mind. Even your son and I, with we the way we yes, think about how way, our jokes oh, are hilarious. Yeah, yes. I really am curious as to why. It's no. a boy thing. You'll never understand it. <laughs> boy thing. Um, so I I love I loved watching that. I loved um I loved understanding that in me. I loved having those conversations with people about their experience. And what I found was so interesting is that we, there's so many things that we get stuck on in our life, all of us. And there's obviously the blaringly like big T things that you go through that everyone would look at and go, oh yeah, that's a terrible thing to have experienced. And and that's so difficult. But what I get really curious about with people is not just what they've been through, but it's the beliefs that they've taken on because of what they went through. Mm-hmm. Because if we're just looking at our life experience from this place of, I experienced this and now I'm this way, now I struggle in this way or I'm stuck in this way because this thing happened to me, then there's not a lot of movement because we've immediately passed over the weight of like, well, you know, I went through childhood trauma, for example, and it's like, well, now I'm here and it's like well we you can't go back and you know undo your childhood so are you just stuck and the answer is absolutely not but if we can get curious about what were the things you started taking on what were the beliefs you started taking on from a big t or a little t experience in your life those are things that we can rework in in the mind we can soften what came from the experience that you went through, we can rewrite that a little bit. We can work on the way you perceive that and we can help with the behaviors and things that are coming up now that tie all the way back to that thing. Again, big or small, sometimes it's the littler things actually that are even more difficult than the big things. 
But where I think we get really stuck is when we feel like this thing happened in my life and we create a whole story around it. And therefore, I'm never going to be in a healthy relationship. I never can get in charge of my finances. It's just my family. You know, like we've been in poverty. I'm always going to be in poverty or, you know, I, I've got this gene set and I can never move the needle. I'm always going to be unhealthy or my dad's an addict. I'm an addict, you know, and, and here, and we, we, we relinquish accountability in a way, but it also keeps this victimhood about us that keeps us stuck when our dreams are so big and the things on our heart are so big and we're feeling this limitation of this wall, this upper limit problem. And what I love to sit with with people is that ability to get curious for us to trace back maybe where some of that locked in pretty deep. How long have you been telling yourself that story? And for people to realize that it is in fact a story. And if it's a story, they can start choosing different thoughts. And we go back to mindset and we work on healing from a mind, body, soul aspect so that they can start shifting the future. It's not a life sentence, the things that we go through and we can get through them. How important is the story that per, that a person tells themselves? How important is that for their overall growth and progression? I feel like it's everything. I feel like it's literally everything. Because let's say you go through like a really difficult thing. You've been like, let's just use like childhood poverty, for example. Maybe you didn't have enough food um, on the table or, you know, there were just, those are things you were always conscious of. So now, you know, whatever that byproduct is. If you can go back and rework maybe the stories you're telling yourself is there's never enough or I have like if there's food in front of me, I need to eat it because I don't know where my next meal is coming from. And even if that's more of a subconscious dialogue that can have some massive shifts in the way you show up and have a relationship with food. Um, and so if we can start to rewrite those things, if we can find something that we believe, you have to be able to believe the statement, right? I can't say like. Oh, I'm just so glad I was starving for 10 years, you know, but if you can say, wow, the things that I learned from that chapter in my life have made me stronger. Um, you know, the takeaways that I was able to do, the compassion I have for others is so deep. I can have an impact in this space. Then it becomes a worthwhile, it's not a wasted thing. I don't believe you necessarily have to be grateful that you went through it. Some people believe that I don't necessarily think you have to say like, Yeehaw, I'm really glad that kicked my butt, you know, but I do think we can find gratitude for some of the things because of how we learn to transform them, you know, and be there for that process. So your mindset on what you've been through does greatly affect then what you went through. If you think my life was destroyed, like, and I'll never come back from that. How powerful is that words? Or if you thought, went through some difficulty. I know I can help people just like me. That's my superpower. I'm so happy. Like I, I can take all of this and see it in a different way because I viscerally experienced it. My goodness, that person is someone to be reckoned with. The, the experience itself hasn't changed, but the outlook on what you've done liberates you and opens up this whole realm of possibility instead of limiting you and breaking you. Mm. Given the fact that there are so many experts out there that talk about things like trauma from, you know, big T to little T trauma that everybody experiences, how important is self-reflection? 
I think self-reflection is really big. You, but, but I have the caveat that it's not for you to hold huge judgment over yourself because shame and guilt can really limit you. It can also be a motivator in the right way if you can recognize. How so? Well, I think if, for example, let's talk about an abuse cycle. Let's talk about an addiction cycle, for example, right? So an addict, whether it's like alcohol or sex or whatever it is, someone that's, or food even, you know, but there's this, I'm going to have this extreme control over my life. I'm going to do it X, Y, and Z. They lay out the map of how it's going to be. And then they mess up. So there's this opportunity of like, okay, I ate the food or I slept with the person or I, you know, whatever it is, I had the bottle of alcohol. Okay. We're in this moment now. We made this choice. Are we going to spiral and go into all the shame and guilt? I can't believe I can't hate myself. I'm not good enough. I'm never going to be good enough. I'm never going to conquer this. Just right down the toilet. Or do you take a breath and go, okay. Okay, this was a step backwards. I want to take steps forward and you take radical accountability for where you are. You set up the system that's going to support you, whether that's like your accountability partner, a program, a partner, like whoever, whatever it is that's that you are going to be honest with that's also has the interest of helping you evolve past this moment. And then you set up the plan for moving forward and you count your wins moving forward. Mm. It's not saying it didn't happen because again, like the addict cycle is typically is that you relapse and then you hate yourself. You hate yourself. You blame yourself. You're terrible. All these things. And it's such a painful emotion to sit in. Then you immediately just white knuckle it and go, okay, it didn't really happen or it's not that bad or it's no big deal. I'm going to pretend like it didn't happen. I'm just going to white knuckle moving forward and pretend that they're not both the person that has this commitment to growth and the person that had a setback and is going to move forward. And I think we have to hold space for ourselves. When I talk about grace, it's this opportunity to really show up and say, I, I'm both of these things. I have the desire and the heart to move forward. I also have to be really honest when I do take a step back and I need to get clear with myself So I can invite the systems and the people and the support that I need. That's not a weakness. It's actually a massive strength. And having that community rally around you, things like AA or SA or, you know, a therapist or a a counselor or a coach or somebody that's there saying, hey, this is an area you want to improve in. This is an area that I've also like conquered. I'm going to support and be there for you. They get it. Typically, they're people that have walked that same path but they're going to help cheer you on so you don't get stuck, but you have to be able to look at it without spiraling. Mm -hmm. There's a, when we talk about addicts, people who might be addicted to drugs, alcohol, uh, sex, pornography. Yeah. I think that there's a line that's drawn there in some people's mind. They say, that's not me. And yet if you look statistically at America, There was a a recent report that came out that said when you compare the average body fat percentage of an American to a pig, we are statistically fatter than pigs. Wow. It's shocking. 
And yet we don't look at people and say, all right, statistically, we are fatter than pigs. And so you are a food addict. We, it's become so normal in our society to live in that way and to justify that way that we are blurring the lines of what's healthy and what's not healthy. And so I'd like to frame this next question in the form of health versus not health rather than addict versus addict. Given that most people wouldn't consider themselves an addict, but they might consider the nuanced expression of healthy versus not healthy. My observation is that people who are more healthy in their choices and in their decisions in life, they don't throw the baby out with the bathwater. And so if a an overindulgence happens or if you know they don't achieve a goal or if something uh, doesn't go to plan, the healthier versions don't throw the baby out with the bathwater and say, well, I had a couple of drinks. I might as well drink the whole bottle. Well, I had a little bit of sugar, and so I might as well go eat the dozen donuts. Whereas those that live in unhealthy habits, they tend to go and throw the baby out with the bathwater and go all the way. What's your perspective? Well, I, I totally agree with you. And I think it can be a difficult thing, especially if we consider ourselves in recovery of one thing or another, even if it's like mm. television or, you know, something where you're trying to have a healthier habit in your life, a better balance where you see something's not serving you. It can be really hard. I think our human psychology is one to throw the baby out with the bathwater because it tends to be an easier switch. The decision to stay in mindfulness is very intentional because we have, you know, we have probably millions of thoughts that go through our mind every day, most of which are on autopilot. We've curated these thought patterns over time. And sometimes we forget that we are the ones choosing them because we're just running this dialogue that's creating all these things in our life. And oftentimes we relinquish responsibility and yeah. say, oh, it's because of this, this, this. But in reality, it's like, it's probably how we're thinking and feeling about what we're going through that's then creating these actions and then results, right? So I think about it in all different ways where, and this is where like trauma can be super interesting because again, we might have our big T's, but what are our little T's? And this is what I find so interesting with some of my clients is like, we'll be working in something. And then all of a sudden they're bringing up, they're like, I just had this epiphany. And it came from this memory that as they're sharing it with me as a coach, it sounds very benign. But then when they're able to explain, I had this experience, this was my takeaway. And I started believing this about myself. I'll give you an example. This is a personal example, and this might sound so silly to you, but I have a very clear memory of being, I'd like to think, I think I was about 10 years old, being in the family room of my house, and my mom had grown up playing poker with her friends as a kid. She was really good at shuffling cards, mm. and I wanted to learn. I wanted to learn how to like, you know, do it down and then like have the cards pop back up and have it be really cool. And I remember being little, like young, you know, young grade school age and shuffling the cards and totally messing it up and looking at my mother and my mother, I don't even know the words that came out of her mouth. It was just something silly. She was laughing in her way, like 
with me, you know, <laughs> like this, I tried and, and silly, but my takeaway from the experience, the exchange that happened was I'm not good enough. That oh, was the literal voice that came into my head Interesting. as a child, because I couldn't shuffle the cards properly. That was not, let me be very clear. That was not something my mother put on me, but I really wanted to do that. Well, I didn't do it well, but the takeaway was so severe. I'm not good enough. It wasn't even specifically about cards. It was, I am not good enough. I'm not worthy. And I remember coming back down after everyone went to bed that night and sitting there and like trying and trying and wanting to get it so that I could feel some of my worthiness back. Now, again, silliest example ever, right? But that was something that I took with me and then started to translate into the way that I was performing in school, into other things in there. But it it started to be a story I was telling myself. If I couldn't execute something perfectly, if I couldn't I was really into singing and performing. If I couldn't sing the song as good as I thought it was supposed to be, if I couldn't, you know, dance as good as the other girls in my dance program, then I just didn't want to do it because then I'm not good enough. And if I couldn't do it perfectly, it wasn't good enough. And God, like talk about throwing out the baby with the bathwater. If you're quitting dance at an early age, you don't want to practice the piano because you're not a concert pianist overnight. Right. Right. Like those, but I think we all have kind of our versions of that, of where did we start getting stuck or we refuse to indulge in something like something maybe we would be really excited or passionate about because we had this inner dialogue that we weren't good enough to do it. I, I think a lot of that starts when we're young, doesn't it? Yeah. Um, Maxwell Maltz talks about this in, in his book, Psycho-Cybernetics, where uh, there's a story of a, uh, a person who had become a top wrestler and who ended up even winning the uh, Division II NCAA championship. But the story that he told himself was it was Division Two, it wasn't Division One. And when I went to Division One, I, I only took seventh place. I believe at an early age, and an early age. Let, let me just clarify: that doesn't mean it, it has to be five or six years old. I truly believe that men and women in their thirties and forties, and sometimes even fifties, it's still an early age for some of them to process information because they're not pausing and they're not looking at things in a different way and take on a belief in a situation that is not necessarily related to that, right? Your mom didn't mean to tell you that you weren't worthy or you weren't smart or whatever it was, right? Oh my gosh. She's done everything in her power to make me feel smart and empowered. Right. And right. yeah. I remember one day I was shooting baskets and I was talking to my dad about uh, how I wanted to be in the NBA. And he said, well, you have a lot of other talents. And, you know, he he was helping to guide my thought process towards something that was very practical for me. And he was starting to point out things that I did really well. The way that I took that at the time was that this guy was telling me that I was never going to achieve my dream of being an NBA player. Um, and, you know, I was upset and sad because of that. But anybody that looked at my uh, tiny five foot, I don't know what I was, maybe five foot five, I think when I was when I'm fully grown now, uh, and and have shoes on, I'm close to five eight. Um, but it, nobody looking at my tiny body at the time would have said, Oh, yeah, that guy's destined for the <laughs> NBA. 
and he didn't mean anything negative by it. It was actually a very positive thing. But in the moment, something hit me in a very sad way, like a door in my life had, had suddenly closed. Um, fortunately, I was able to pause later on and think, well, that's not what this was all about. And um, it actually became a very healing and a very open eye-opening thing for me to look at things uh, in a different way, right? So Kim, when you think about these experiences that we all have, that we are tying some sort of belief, some sort of uh, declaration to an experience that doesn't necessarily have to be there. This idea, this philosophy that you're not good enough because you couldn't shuffle the cards. I, I think it all starts with observation. How do people pause and start to observe and really question those beliefs before they get too deeply embedded? Yeah. Or sometimes after they're deeply embedded, you know, like some of some storylines have been going on through people's minds since they were kids. And mm. maybe it's been seven months, seven years, seven decades even, right? And yeah. we still get to show up to these things. We still have that opportunity for healing and overcoming. And um, a, a big part of it does come down to, I liked your word, observation. And that can come in a lot of different ways. Obviously, like therapy and coaching is amazing to have another person in the space that can help you kind of process through. But I think even on your own and in your own way, journaling can be a wonderful way for you to start to just get curious and observe, be, be the outside observer to our thoughts. We're so emotionally tied to the things that we are thinking. And oftentimes it's just allowing yourself the space to realize that yeah. your thoughts are not you. They're something totally separate. And so without judgment, if you can start to see maybe where some of that stuff is coming from. And sometimes it's the end result where you're saying, I keep repeating things. Things are showing up in my life that I am not happy with. And you can go, okay. Like, for example, with some of your clients, Steve, where it's like, I know you work on the mind, body, and soul, but specifically with the body, if people are coming to you saying, it's an easy thing to say, 50 pounds overweight. Yep. I want to address that. But the beautiful thing about what you offer people is you don't just sit there and it's not just a pound on the scale. You're saying, what got you there? What's what's the emotion? Like, what are the things behind the way that you're eating? You get curious with people and allow it to be a process where, yes, you're always teaching healthier habits. You're going to take them to the gym. They're going to learn the skills to get them there. But still, if there's not some vision of what's going on behind the scenes as certain things physically are showing up. And that's why even in my practice, we talk so much about mind, body, and soul because they really are united. And sometimes we're thinking our way into a new way of acting. And sometimes we act our way into a new way of thinking. But those indicators, both physically, emotionally, mentally, spiritually, that rise up in us, give us maybe the direction, the arrow to go, hey, maybe check this out. The other thing I tell people to do as they're getting curious and journaling and these things is go where the emotion is. If you and I can sit down and talk about, you know, you can express something, hey, I went through this really difficult time. These are the things that I learned. This is where I'm at with it, you know, you know this real vulnerable conversation, but the emotions aren't super heightened. That's probably 
a good indicator. I mean, of course you could be stuffing, but there is something about like, once you've really healed and worked through something, the power of the experience, the weight of it, the heaviness, the emotion of it does shift. And that's how you can kind of notice the healing taking place. But where we see really heightened emotions within ourself, um, that's often a place where we go, oh, again, no judgment, but we go, I can, I can, there's a little bit more work to do here. I can show up to this space. How do you recommend people journal? You can do it in a couple different ways. I, you can do just what I'd call a thought download. Sometimes when you're like, I don't know why I'm feeling stuck, but I've got this stuff going on inside of me. Just do a thought download. You can scribble it out, express it all out. Um, I also really like the practice of when you sit down to journal, having a couple different things. One, I like the idea of expressing gratitude because even when our life feels really heavy and we're dealing with really big things, there are always things in this moment to be grateful for. And it's not a Pollyanna approach. It's not a toxic positivity, so to speak, but it's there are things in this moment, even in the chaos, even in the storm, that I can be really grateful for. And those things help ground you into the present moment. And it also helps provide this hope, this hope, these things that things can look up, that things can get better. Because sometimes when we're so trapped in our own thoughts, we shut down. And we can't see a way through it. And you and I were just having this conversation about like the suicide rates here in Utah and especially amongst the men are so high Mm -hmm. and I can't help but think what a difference it would make if there was just a little bit of space in that mind when it's like when it's spiraling, when it's feeling not good enough, when it's feeling like there's no hope, there's no everything. And we just like hone down. What if we could get out and go on a walk and get some fresh air in our lungs and look around and just take a couple minutes to say, okay, but like, what are the things that are going right? Maybe it's that you found an awesome program to help you through things. Maybe it's your family, maybe it's relationship, maybe it's an opportunity at work. Like maybe it's just the fact that you can hear the birds chirping and the sun is out and those things can ground you into, okay, there's hope. Like we can move we can move forward. We can get past into a better moment if this one's feeling that heavy. You know, uh, in in his book, Cycle Cybernetics, um, Dr. Maltz talks a lot about how we have a machine inside of us, essentially. Uh, our subconscious mind uh, is not, we are not the machine and we are not a machine, but we have a machine inside of us that we can utilize. I have constantly told my kids that every time they have their face staring at a screen, they are being programmed. They're being programmed to think a certain way. They're being programmed to feel or not feel a certain way. Oftentimes I think they're being programmed to just be numb because the constant input that's coming into them doesn't leave any space for emotion or feeling to be there. The constant programming is something that I believe leads to men and women not knowing the difference between a thought that was implanted or a thought that is their own. As people journal, how do they get to the point where they realize this might not be my thought? This may not be my belief. This might be something I just picked up because I've watched too much social media and compared myself with other people. 
Yeah. Um, Chase, well, let's see. A couple of things. Mindfulness is is huge. I think you have to spend quiet time with yourself every day. That scares the shit out of most men. I know. I know. Because, and you know what's so interesting is that there is such a different culture for men and for women. My female clients, for example, there's still, there's like a culture amongst women where they feel it's socially acceptable for us to gather at lunchtime, for us to have our little Marco Polo yep. groups, for us to have our Facebook groups, like our church groups, our community groups, where we can talk, where we share, where we hear each other's stories, where we hold space to talk about the kids and the life and the house and managing the jobs and all these things. Um, and so even though, you know, we still struggle and women have their own you know, very specific social norms that they're trying to fit into and very hard things. What I notice with my male clients is maybe their spouse is like somebody that they talk to, but it's, it's less what I would say socially acceptable for them to be vulnerable with each other. They'll go out and do fun things. And, and when I, I, I mean, I still know a lot of men that find their people to be vulnerable with, I just want it to be more the norm and more what's just acceptable, um, encouraged and supported where men are, are feeling so free to find those groups and it's spaces where they can be imperfect, <laughs> where they don't have to be the rock and they, they can be honest with the hard things they're going through and the challenges that they're showing up to and that they also get heard and supported so that it doesn't start splintering into this double life where they're showing one side of themselves on the forefront because that's who they have to be and it's where they're getting their self-worth and validation it's wearing you know driving the right car and putting their family in the right house and the right clothes and and things and just being this strength but inside they're feeling so broken and they're, and they're struggling so deeply. So then all of their brokenness becomes a secret. And the secret is where the poison is, because if they can bring that to the surface then they can get, they can get that support. And even just that camaraderie, like if you sit down with one of your guys and it's like, man, I'm doing X, Y, and Z and I'm balancing this and my family's going through this and I've shown up to this and someone just holds space for you. It's like, man, I love you, dude. Like, so sorry you're going through that. How can I support you? Like, are you kidding me? Like, they don't have to change one thing in your life, but them being willing to show up and like, I see you, I get you, I can relate to parts of that. I'm here for you. That that shifts. Yeah, I have a theory, and and the theory is when you look at um, we've we've talked about and we talk about suicide on the podcast because it's such a massive, massive killer in America. And especially where we live in Utah. Um, I look at the way that men uh, kill themselves more often than not, and they, they shoot themselves um, and shoot themselves through the head. And my theory is that, as you just discussed, this idea that all of these thoughts are in the head and we don't know what to do with them. We don't know how to reconcile them. We can't necessarily express them in ways that might be healthy and productive. And so I've got to get them out of my head somehow, right? And the only way to do that is to, quote, Blow, blow my brains out. And so it's a way of getting the thoughts out of the head. Social norms. We talked about this at the beginning with 
Abercrombie and Pendleton and men and women both have social norms. Men will adopt a bro type mentality, just like women adopt the Stanley cup and go around and wear the Lululemon and they match up with each other. Right. We do it in different ways. It's fascinating to me, especially in our current society that we men connecting, um, in ways that are other than just this overtly masculine way, um, it, it's not viewed as normal or acceptable. I remember years ago, I had a young man that was working for me, and he was uh, very smart. I don't even know what his IQ was, but he had mentioned to me, he goes, yeah, I'm, I'm really good at counting cards, and I, I like to, uh, to gamble. Uh, and so we took a trip to... Uh, I don't know what's a place. Wendover. Wendover. Yes, thank you. <laughs> As like Vegas. We took a we took a trip to Wendover um, one night because I was curious to see. Like I'm not a gambler. I don't play cards. I uh, I don't like the idea of losing my money. And I just I thought, <laughs> hey, this would be kind of fun to go watch you do your thing. Yeah. So he and I drive out to Wendover. We go to uh, one of the casinos there. And I just sat back and watched in awe as he went through his whole system and walked away with a few hundred dollars. We went from one level of the casino to another. We go into the elevator and some people come into the elevator. They kind of looked us up and down. And then as they were walking out, they made an extremely derogatory uh, type comment about the fact that they thought that we were gay. And not just like, hey, there's a couple of gay guys, but it was like, I can't even remember what they said, but I thought, okay, well, there's some strange homophobia happening right there, first and foremost. But the, the derogatory nature of that and the fact that two heterosexual males could be there and just have a friendship and we could be there for the my curiosity of saying, wow, I want to watch you do your thing. Like, that's pretty cool. Yeah. Um, that that. I don't know, that surprised me. I guess I was shocked by that experience that two men could experience something like that. Uh, and the outside view from these people was that this friendship was something that was negative or derogatory in their in their mind. Given that social norm that men are not supposed to be, uh, open, right? We, we, we use the word vulnerable, which I think for men, it gets weaponized a little bit too much. I think it's a great terminology for women. I think it gets weaponized a little too much in, in the masculine space. I think that, you know, men need to be uh, open. Uh, I'm, I'm very open with the people that I, uh, am friends with. We are very straight talking with each other. Yeah. Given the social norms, how do men open up those conversations when they're having a difficult time with someone else? I find with men, it's more about having the one or two. You know, I think all we all, all of us need at the same time is like having one or two people to like open up to. But women tend to be, like I mentioned, we just tend to be a little bit more communal. Um, mm. The way we socialize is is broader. And I think for men, it's cultivating relationships with one or two other men 
that are working, that value the same things, your values align and that you're encouraging in the same way. Because just like with women, our words, our actions, our behaviors are very, um, they can be just as toxic. You can get into relationships with people and all you do is say the negative or go down your own spiral. It's this comparison thing or whatever. But I think when you can create a safe space and have that place to be vulnerable and even setting that intention and setting that example with how you're showing up to that, it can be incredibly powerful and serving for you. So I would say for someone that's in that space, look at people that you do admire, that you're admiring how they're showing up and whether it's someone that you just, that you want, that's kind of more of a mentorship, even like someone you really admire with business and in their relationships and the way they're showing up to things. There are definitely people in my life that I do that with that are, you know, above me. They're typically older than me. They've had a little bit more life experience. And I really admire the way that they're showing up to their challenges. And maybe some of the things that I'm currently working on, I see the way that they are They've managed or overcome an obstacle in a certain way. And I go, oh, I want to learn from you. So I would say whether you're a man or a woman, it's finding people and communities that do bring those things out, that there is an accountability, that they're not just your yes people that are going to hype you up. And they're not the people that aren't going to call you out on your bad behavior because all of us have those behaviors and personalities and things inside of us. They always say like, you have two wolves inside of you. Which one wins? Well, it's the one that you feed. So much of us are influenced by the people that we choose to surround ourselves with and the people. So if you're having someone that's just enabling bad behavior, that's taking you away from being the best and the highest version of yourself, those aren't your people. And I would challenge you to perhaps choose someone else that you feel that you can be honest with that you're still, you know, speaking your truth and where you're at and things you're working on, but they're going to encourage you. They're going to love you. They're going to support you but they're not going to coddle you and they're not going to excuse poor behavior. They're going to really call and encourage you to be the best version of yourself. So community is big. So we go back to mindfulness, right? Finding a way to get the thoughts out on paper, recognizing maybe where your thoughts are going, figure out community, try to, you know, whether it's in therapy, it could be, you know, a mentorship, it can be a men's group, a women's group, but that the values that are instilled in those places are ones that are meant to uplift and encourage and and help you progress on your path. Be very intentional about plugging into some of those spaces. And then we can tap into some of these other things. And one of them is, of, of course, the body. And that's like, a, I know that's a very important thing for the way that you coach and mentor and work with people. It's a very big part of what I do with people. And what I recognized is that when I was finishing up school, I had the great privilege of working with a woman I admired. She come and spoke to my program and I fell in love with her. And I loved the way that she talked about things. She was, she, you know, claimed that she could really shift things in people so much quicker because she embodied these like mind, body, soul practices. So I was like, Oh, I'm interested. Started working with her, her and, and interned with her. And I remember showing up with her one time and, and she had said, you know, we're going to, okay, like this is our Fridays. We're going to work on your stuff. And at the time I was like, I was so interested in the big T's and what people had been through. And I myself at the time didn't have anything that I would consider a big T. And I just was like, oh, I don't need, I don't need that. I'm good. Like I haven't been through any of these huge, terrible things. And she was like, Kim, everybody needs this. 
And that's, you know, when you said at the beginning, you know, we hear this word trauma and it's, and we're so, oh, I don't, I don't qualify for trauma. I haven't been through terrible, terrible things. You know, it's like, no, we all have these traumas inside of us and things that we can work on. And we immediately dove into some things with myself and, but I fell in love with the ability that our bodies have first of all, to, to hold on to trauma, like to create trauma. And someone explained it really well to me one time when I was studying it was trauma in the body and in the mind occur when we go, we're, we're instilled, we've been, we've been given these things through evolution, this fight, flight, freeze, fawn mechanism to get out of bad situations. Where trauma starts to be created is often when we go through an experience that we feel like our physical body should have gotten us out of. Mm. It should have kept us safe. Again, we can use big T or little T, but when we tried to implement something that we feel like should have saved us, like the, the lion running after the gazelle, like it's, it's what kicks in that adrenaline that kicks in that gets us away. And then we, and then we're free of, of the things we've been through. Well, what happens when we go through a trauma and instead of having the ability to physically run away, our body freezes because it decides in that split second that to survive what we're about to go through, we're going to have to like hold tight and maybe check out, maybe dissociate, maybe do all these things. But the bottom line is we leave an experience and think my physical body didn't save me from that. And we start having this internal dialogue that we are not safe in our own minds in our own bodies and our own thoughts and our own spirits, all of those things. And we start almost having this like autoimmune response to ourselves, And it might not even be conscious. There's a subconscious of like, I'm not safe. And it's easy to point fingers. This person hurt me. I went through this thing, you know, but ultimately we're taking from it. Like oh, I am not safe. How do we rewrite that? How do we come back to ourselves and start feeling safe in our own Bodies, you see this a lot when people put on weight after a trauma or they shut down, they start, they stop going out. They start, you know, there's so many byproducts, but it usually has to do with our physical bodies and our physical bodies start to hold on to our trauma. So the cool thing is that if our bodies were able to, you know, in, in a way of self-preserving and taking care of us, we're created these pockets of trauma, then it also is our bodies that get to be our healers and get to be our greatest messengers and teachers as we work through it. So yeah, kind of incorporating that. How, how does a person determine the difference between recognizing trauma, big or little T, and being a victim? I think when you stop blaming and you start taking radical accountability for for moving forward. What does that look like? Um, this is such a great question. It's actually a very personal one. I remember going through my divorce. I had been working with the therapist that I have. That I, I love her to pieces. She has walked by me through so many things. But she was somebody I knew previously. And then I had gone through this thing and I had gone through my marriage and I had, there was a lot of really difficult things that I experienced in that marriage. 
And I remember working with her afterwards, after the divorce had finalized and we were still, you know, working through some of the things that were up for me. And again, this is a woman that loves me. She's been my therapist for so long. She's such a great, like, figure in my life. I admire her so much. And I remember her saying to me, well, are you done being a victim? And I was like, it was, it's one of those moments I speak about often because for me, I was a, I was so mad at her because she was somebody that actually knew everything that I had been through. And I was, I was like, I, I am a victim. (laughs) These things did happen to me and these really hurt. And she was like, as long as your power is outside of you, then you have no power to shift your life. It's all dependent on someone else's choices, accountability, the way they treat you, any of those things. But the power is outside of you. She's like, you got to bring the power back into you. And how you work through and shift through that is such a personal journey, but it comes from saying you, you got to bring the power back. And even though what hurt you can be outside of yourself, your healing is 100% inside of you. It literally has nothing to do with someone else, whether they stop our behavior, whether they make penance for what they've done, whether they've gotten a jail sentence for what they've gotten, even though we want you know, a lot of those things to happen in some of those dark situations. We have the power within ourselves to have a fulfilled and loving and beautiful life. Now, how, like you mentioned, how do we do that? How do we bring our accountability back into us? And that's this big whole process. And we can like dive into that for sure. But what's the difference when, when someone is talking about something and recognizing the trauma or the experience or or even just a limiting belief or some sort of upper limit problem. What's the difference between that and someone who's living in victimhood? Yeah, well, I think both of them has have the first step the same because it's a reckon it's it's recognizing what it is. So where you got stuck or where you got hurt and both of us could say, "Oh, this thing happened to me in childhood." So, okay, that's a great step. So then we go so what? Mm-hmm. So what? Okay. Well, so what? To one person, they're going to go, so I, so yeah, so that's the whole story. <laughs> and to someone else, you go, okay, so what? So this is hard for you. This is a trigger for you. It's so good to be aware of those things. Okay, now how do we show up to overcoming this? Mm-hmm. How do we show up to working with your body, with the, the, your mind? and coming together so that these things don't have to be a big trigger for you anymore so that you can take accountability. If your dad was a drunk, you don't have to be a drunk, but you can say, well, I drink cause my dad and I can't, you know, and, and now this happens. It's like, all right. So you have a genetic predisposition to alcoholism that creates all, you know, abuse and disrupts your relationships and your health and all these different things. Okay. And yeah, maybe that sucks that your buddy next to you can take a drink and he's fine, but you can't. Mm-hmm. So why don't you take accountability for where you're at and where your limitations are so you're actually giving yourself freedom on the other end? Maybe you're at a stage in your life where you can't just have the brownie because you are going to eat the whole pan. Instead of having all the shame around it, just say, hey, this in this season, I don't get to eat this. I don't get to look at this. I don't get to do these things because I want freedom on the other end. If I need to set a boundary up with somebody 
so that I can have more loving thoughts towards them, then let's do that. Let's create a boundary. You know, maybe you were hurt from a parent and you're still trying to navigate that relationship now as an adult. But every time you're around them, around them that wounded soul comes out in you. It's like, all right, well, instead of blame, 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 and just give them your soul, like, okay, where are the boundaries that you can set up with them? Let's get input practical tools so that you can come back to your peace in this experience. And what is the way that, what's the lens that you want to have for the universe, for your experiences, for your future? And then let's, let's align our actions, our thoughts and our actions and our behaviors that are going to move you towards that needle. It seems like it's a, it, it's a radical acceptance of accountability, right? It's an acceptance of not only who you are, but how you think and whatever it is, it just is, you know, I'm the type of person where I grew up eating a lot of sugar and I did it in defiance of a grandfather that was extremely physically and emotionally abusive to me. And so that was my big middle finger to him. And so throughout life, there would be these massive binge cycles of sugar. And so, as you mentioned, at periods of time, I've had to say to myself, eating the sugar, eating treats is just not something that's going to be a part of who I am right now because it doesn't work. I know that it will trigger and be a downward spiral and I will stay on that for a period of time. Now, that's not the case all the time. And I understand that the power is inside of me, but I also accept the fact that it's part of me, that experience created part of how I am. It's the framework, I accept it. I don't judge it, criticize it. It just is what it is. Um, Gaining radical acceptance, I believe, is a very difficult thing for people. Yeah. Coming back to the Abercrombie, coming back to the Pendleton, we all want to be a part of a tribe. Now, there are people out there that say, but I don't want to. I'm going to do things the opposite. And what those people don't understand is that they are a part of another tribe. The X tribe, they're a part of the people who are fighting against what the norm is. They're going against what is, what society is telling them. And they're still part of a tribe. And if you go back and look at any aspect of history where people tried to be X tribe, they all looked the same. You know, back in the day, maybe it was the white t-shirt and the leather jackets and the greased hair. Or today it's, You go into the grocery store and I'm 150 pounds overweight and I have blue or purple hair. I'm going against tribe. So how does a person who wants to evolve get to the point of radical acceptance? You got to disrupt. I'm using one of your favorite words because it's such a beautiful word. And that's some, the way to do that. Um, that was coached directly from you. You have to be willing to get uncomfortable. You, because human nature, human psychology is one that we will choose a comfortable, we will choose a known hell over an unknown or uncomfortable heaven every time. Yeah. 
every time. And if you don't recognize that, just think about the times where you've decided you're going to have a shift in your life in one way or another, and you're on your path and you do it and you have something come up and it immediately rips you from your progress and you drop right back down into what, because you, you knew it, you get back in a bad relationship or you go back to your old habits or whatever it is, because it's, it's the devil, you know? Yeah. Okay. So I think you have to recognize that in healing in any of its forms, it's going to take time. And you have to learn to get uncomfortable, like to get comfortable rather with the uncomfortable. And that can be trained in you and lots of things. Like I see people do that with taking ice baths, Mm -hmm. you know, they're, they're choosing to put themselves in a very uncomfortable physical situation to challenge themselves, mind, body, and soul for health reasons, for, you know, for mental reasons, for all sorts, there's great benefits that come from it, but really there is this like disrupt what's happening, what you're cycling through in order to bring about like your new normal. But the new normal is very uncomfortable for a long time. It can be, I should, I should say it can be. I'm specifically working with trauma survivors right now. That's like, they have this been been in this heightened sense of trauma for a long period of time. And so retraining their brains and their bodies to come out of that fight or flight where they're not reliving their trauma through their dreams and through their daily experiences is, is a process and it's having grace for the process and learning to get comfortable with the uncomfortable. Yoga was another great way to do that when they put you in these really uncomfortable, deep stretching positions that are deeply uncomfortable and you're having to hold them for several minutes at a time. Mm-hmm. It's giving you the opportunity to breathe and know that, you can show up to these difficult things in your life. It will end. You're not going to be in this forever, but you're training your mind to know that you can withstand the discomfort instead of immediately going to numbing behaviors and thoughts that pull you right out of that presence. Do you you ever think about that? Our desire for tribe, our desire to belong sometimes gets in the way from our path of progression and evolution. And let me back up and give a postscript um, to that question. I, I've always believed that everyone's growth and progression happens at their own time and in their own way. You mentioned ice baths. I can't remember the first time that I had the desire to go get cold but I was very young and I thought to myself sitting in a hot tub, looking out at all this beautiful snow. Oh, that'd be really cool to jump out there in my swimsuit and just lay in the snow. And I did. And then I would go back and forth and back and forth. And this is way before the internet. And we did live in Utah. We don't live in some Scandinavian country. And then later on, I learned that this was some sort of health practice that people in Scandinavian countries had figured out was a good idea. Yeah. I remember one of the first few times that someone looked at me and told me that I was crazy for wanting to go jump in the lake in the middle of the winter time, but I'd been doing this for a period of time, just intuitively. And then all of a sudden, Wim Hof becomes famous, (laughs) and now everybody is buying an ice bath. And now I don't even want to take a 
or admit to taking <laughs> cold baths because it's in vogue. Now, I bring that up because I'm a big believer that our growth and our path and this idea of disruption needs to be something that we do on our own, meaning that we find our way. Now, I the other day I thought about writing up a uh, social media post, and I may still do it, saying how much of a hypocrite I am and how much of what I preach to other people I don't practice. Because the what I do practice, if people were to look at it, they'd look at me and say, you're crazy until like 10 years later. And then they're like, oh, that's really cool, right? That's so cool. Good. They're doing it. Yeah, one someday you've got to call Casey Ruff and ask him about the time that uh, I convinced him to go to the lake. We were staying at my cabin and I said, let's go to the lake. And let's go jump in the water in the middle of the winter time. And he's like, uh, okay. And he thought I was joking. And then when we went and did it, um, he thought I was the craziest guy in the world. Now everybody in the world is doing this type of thing, right? The point is, I believe that everyone has their own path. I believe that everybody has their own timing. I believe that people have to disrupt and move in certain ways that are right for them. I believe through creativity, through intuition, through tapping into the spiritual ethereal side of who we are and tapping into the greater wisdom of the universe and what's out there, that we can find that path much better than listening to some talking head on a social media app that tells us to start taking ice baths or whatever it is. Yeah. I'd love to get your take on that. Yeah. Your question being, what's your deep question? How do people find their path rather than just going on with whatever trite, contrived, or prescribed exercise is in vogue at the time. Right. You know, someone asked me the other day, what do you think of colostrum? You know what colostrum is, right? Well, the, what the first milk essentially, right? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Do you know how many times colostrum has been in vogue? It's in vogue again. People are taking colostrum again. I've not heard this. It's either. been about a decade and a half since it was in vogue before. It's in vogue now. <laughs> So people are taking it. Yeah. Now it's better than collagen is what people are saying. That was the same shit they said 15 years ago. And then they couldn't sell any more of it and they stopped selling it and it wasn't in vogue. So my question is, how do people find their path rather than just going on with what is in vogue? I think the cool thing is that when things are quote unquote cool or accessible to us, then we do get to try things on. Like, for example, I was working. Well, I like at, the way you said that. I was working at Lifetime Fitness when I got first introduced to yoga. And part of it was that relationships that I had at the club were people teaching. And so I was like, sure, I'll come to your class. Or, yeah, like, I want to come see what this is all about. And it introduced me to something. You were a massage therapist. I was a massage therapist. Yes. Still do a lot of massage therapy work for the body healing. But I got introduced to something because it was a trendy thing at the club that I was a part of. Yeah. Right. But I fell in love with it so deeply and personally because it was part of my, there was so much healing that happened. It was so great physically, but I'll be honest, I've always been 
called to physical activity when I connect to the spirit, like when I mm -hmm. feel like my spirit is being connected with in that right. space. And that's right. what yoga was for me. And all of a sudden I was, you know, like I had these gorgeous arms I was ridiculously proud of. And I took a teacher training and I got to then teach and, you know, I, I had this deep love affair with it, but it, it started because it was a rather trendy and I had friends that were doing it. So I don't think there's, for me personally, I don't think there's anything wrong with the introduction of all sorts of new things because somebody that we hear of, whether it's someone you're in a relationship with or not, like if it's on a magazine or it's a friend or it's somebody, they get to introduce you to something. This is where I feel like we all have to be careful. Like you said so beautifully, other people's paths are not our path. And sometimes, whether it's the religion, the church that we go to, mm -hmm. it's the spiritual practice, it's the way we do our physical activity, like, oh, you have to do cardio. No, you have to lift weights. No, you have to eat keto. No, you have to be a vegan. Like, there's so much contradictory voices out there. It can get really overwhelming. And even in conversations in our close community, sometimes can be a, no, you need to take my path because my path is the way. Right. I think what becomes really beautiful and it's, it's something that gets taught in Buddhism, which is we are a path. We are not the path. And when we can have a humility where I can say like, Hey, yoga is really powerful for me because these are my takeaways. And you and I can have that conversation and you can go, wow, like, that's amazing. You said X, Y, and Z, you feel peace, you feel strong in your body, you feel the sense of accomplishment, you feel invigorated, you have positive thoughts. I get that when I go lift really heavy. And yeah, maybe there's some overlap, you get to introduce some of your stuff to me and vice right, versa. Right. But what we're, we're connecting on is both of us are in intentional progression in our mind, our body and our soul. I'm sharing with you something that works really beautifully for me, but I'm speaking about it from my own personal experience versus I'm proselyting you on it. Or I'm telling you this is the one way that you can be healthy is if you eat this way or you do this thing. And, you know, you we can have very different experiences. Like, Kate, we, you know, we love Casey Ruff so much and he has this very like carnivore diet that he preaches about that he believes he's embodied it so beautifully and all this incredible research on and he teaches and educates people in this space well my body personally feels so much better when I eat a really plant-based meal Casey and I are in deep respect and love for each other but my body experiences things differently mm. for whatever reason but that can also be like religiously and spiritually where it's like hey, I feel so grounded in this one church or in this one religion or this one set of beliefs and, you, and you're and you teaching other people about it or you're saying this is the one way, but that doesn't work for somebody else. And then you're having this conflict or that person feels so much guilt and shame because they're not fitting in a box. They've just been told is the right box. But it's like, but I don't feel, you're saying you choose these things because it makes you feel peace and it brings you closer to yourself and to your purpose and your family and all these things. And but I don't feel that on your path and it's having grace for each other to be like, okay, but then what is your, you know, what are the things that help you and being that friend and that support to finding those things? But I, when you ask, like, how do you find it personally? I think you just really trust yourself, know that you're a work in progress, reserve the right to change your mind. Something might work for you for a season of your life and it might be different the next season, but checking in and coming back to what are those, when I talk to clients, sorry, I'm rambling, Steve, but 
when I talk to clients and say like, what are the things you're looking for? What do you want to feel? I'm always hearing, I want to feel more peace in my life. Mm. I want to feel more love. I want to feel worthy to just be me. I can't tell you. Those are like the universal themes that come up. It's like, all right, then if that's your guiding North star, how do we help get you there? What's the undoing we need to do? What's the healing in the body? What's the spiritual thoughts? How do we connect you to your divine, whatever that looks like? Everyone's so personal. How beautiful is that? Like whether it's nature, it's universe, or it's God, or it's Jesus, or it's Buddha, like I don't care. But what is it that works for you? What's the imagery that works for you? Let's connect you there and help you start to feel that worthiness just for being you, just for being you. So I, I don't talk about this often, and this is probably the first time I think I've ever said this publicly outside of talking to a couple of friends about this. But there was a period of time, maybe two, three years, where I went through a very dark, negative period. Um, I hated humanity. I didn't like people in general, and I had a very negative outlook on uh, human beings. I had left a religion, and I had changed and moved into a different path in life. And it was it, it was an interesting journey, right? Intellectually, it was interesting. Spiritually, it was interesting because it. I I I felt led internally to a point where I said, this is the path that I need to go on in my personal life. I know it goes against the way that I was born and raised. I know that it goes against uh, the way that everybody else in my tribe at the time was living. But I felt like it was the most integrous and authentic way for me. When I left that, the hatred, the uh, negativity, the vilification, the gossip, the, you know, you name it, that was laid upon me and laid upon my wife uh, and put me into a situation for probably two or three years where I went very dark and very uh, negative towards other humans. I did everything possible to remove myself from interaction with other people. And yet at the same time, I also knew that I was on my path. The question I constantly asked myself is why, if I'm moving on the path that I believe and feel like is the path for me, would I then be vilified by other people who are saying the same thing? It's the path that they feel like is right for them, even though it's not, you know, their, their path is not my path. Yeah. Why was I being vilified? And I'm not sure if I spent time in victimhood or not. I know I spent time in anger. What I learned from that time, though, was something that I used to teach quite often in leadership uh, situations. I had someone ask me once, Steve, how do you trust other people? And I said, well, I don't know that I necessarily trust other people, but I trust what I can trust, meaning that I know the nature of human beings. I know the nature of people. So I know what I can trust. I also know my nature. I know what I can trust inside of myself. And I can predict with relative accuracy what I'm going to do. And I can predict with relative accuracy what someone else is going to do. 
as I went along that path and I paused and I observed one of the most beautiful things about that very dark and challenging time of my life, which I hope to never go through again. <laughs> I mean, I'm not a part of anything that I think I'm going to leave that uh, anybody will be, you know, looking at me later on and saying, oh, you <laughs> left that again. So I don't think I'm going to experience that again. But one of the things that I learned from that experience was that as soon as you disrupt, as soon as you go into a different path, you have now diverged. And there is no going back in terms of you have chosen your path. And there will be certain people who will watch you and judge you harshly and negatively. And there will other, be other people who will watch you and pay attention and say, wow, I respect and admire what you've done. And then 99.99999% of the people won't even give a shit. Hmm. Right? Yeah. How do people who have grown up with a certain belief system, with a certain religion, with a certain perspective, choose their path even if, or especially if, it goes against what their early training was? It's a big disruption. It's a big disruption. There's actually a lot of, you mentioned that there's pain involved. I think that sometimes when you're so embedded in a specific belief system or thought system religiously or otherwise, when you shift out of that, it can literally feel like you're pulling your skin off your body. Like that can be the level of pain. Or, or death. I, I've yeah. heard many people describe when they say they leave a religion or they move away from a marriage or they, whatever it is, they feel like part of them is dying. Yeah. In fact, I had someone yeah. tell me this recently, called me up for advice. How do you do this? How do you deal with this? I've left this religion. And I feel like a part of me has died. How do I do this? Oh my gosh, Steve, I relate to that so hard. There was a time not too long ago where it felt like I remember someone asking me a question and I was shifting, you know, to some of my spiritual beliefs. And at the same time, I was shifting out of a, a marriage. And I remember saying to this individual, I, they had asked a question like something, something about where I was attending service on Sunday, you know, and I was now attending at a different place and, and that was interesting. And then they were like, and you know, and, and, and what's your last name right now? And I was like, I'm in transition. <laughs> like it felt like all these identifying markers. I was when you're used to being a spouse and uh, like, we give ourselves these titles. I'm a spouse. I'm a mom. I go to this church. Yeah. I do this thing. Yeah. And then all of a sudden that's disrupted and we get attached to it in all sorts of ways. Like I'm this, I'm an athlete. And then your health shifts or, you know, you get an injury or I have this profession. And then you get fired from that job and that's mm. not who you are anymore. Mm. Like, I feel like we do that on so many different levels and I think everyone can relate to this. Um, but especially like you mentioned, especially when it's a choice, when you're choosing out of something because it no longer is aligning with you. The interesting thing about other people is as they express their concerns, we, we have to recognize they're coming from their perspective. That's right. just as deep and passionate as yours as you're shifting, but they also represent a tiny voice in your own head. 
Because whenever you disrupt and you pull yourself out of a situation, the things they are saying to you are often the things you have said to yourself. You've questioned yourself. You've judged yourself on you. You know, if they're saying, hey, you're disappointing the family, you know, you're like, you have felt that you are disappointing your family. They're saying it and you're taking it as truth because that is a voice inside of you that you have listened to, that you are dealing with, that you're trying to process. And all of a sudden, you know, if they said something to you that not an ounce of you believed, no big deal. No big deal. They'd be like, you're this. And you're like, well, I'm not. So it's no big deal. But when they say something that's, it's like pricking you because it's a fear you've already had. It's an insecurity. It's a pain that you're still carrying. It does really hurt. And especially when you lose out or you perceive losing out on relationship because you no longer are part of the club you were a part of before. You've lost family in a divorce. You've lost community within a religion. You've lost, you know, income and status with a job. Like these are real difficult things as they shift. And so I would just encourage you, there's a lot of really good self-care. Come back to your why. What is it that's having you move in this specific direction? Sometimes overcoming family poverty, you know, is really difficult for people because all of a sudden their family's saying, oh, you think you're too good for us now? Yeah. You're so smart. You're going to college. None of us needed to go to college. Oh, you have your own house. Like, this is ridiculous. We're fine. You don't think we're good enough for you, you know? And you create the conflict within those family of origins when you do things a little bit differently or when you disavow things that you were raised up on. And so I think it comes, the stronger we feel in ourselves, taking the time to really know your why. Why are you shifting in this direction? What is important for you as an individual, for your family, for the the contribution that you're doing? What is it about this? And come back to that over and over and over again. It's going to help you stay and feel safe in progressing towards the things that are heavy on your heart and your why. And it also enables you to have empathy and compassion for people that, again, like maybe they don't have to be on their same path, like honoring that they're on their own path and figuring out their own things, having compassion and grace for them. And at the same time saying, hey, you don't get to speak to me this way. This is, this is my path and I love you or I love these, you know, this situation, but this is how I'm honoring and, and really wrapping yourself in that boundary and that healthiness. So you can have that compassion and good thoughts towards other people, even when you're feeling hurt or victimized by them. It, it appears from my perspective that we have become a very dichotomistic um, black and white good or bad, one way or the other society. Yeah, very polarized. Art of nuance is seemingly lost, especially in America. And it might be in other places. I just know where we live. Living a nuanced life, living a life where we're not living in this complete right or wrong, black or white, is one of the most emotionally intelligent things that we can do. It's one of the most healing things we can do. Understanding that everything we're discussing today is not an on and off switch. It's a dial, it's a knob, 
that allows you to turn things up a little bit at a time or turn other things down a little bit at a time. Said, well said. How do people who have dealt with traumatic experiences return to a nuanced approach in life? I, it starts with self-acceptance and self-love. That's some of the very first things I start addressing with people. And the focus. But if I've done something, let's say that I've experienced, so let's, let's say that I've experienced some dramatic trauma, right? Or, or some, uh, something that is very, very traumatic. And I carry guilt. I carry shame. That's a, that's a tough thing to say, just accept it. Right. Yes. It's easy to say, but it's hard to do. How do people get to that point so that they can accept? Yeah. It, it's, you're so right. It does not happen overnight at all. And I don't mean to oversimplify that. There's a, there's a great health coach that I follow follow. And one of the things she talks about is it's not just addressing or taking out the bad in your diet, but she likes to focus on infusing yourself with the good every day. There's still going to be the bad, you know, you still have that cake every once in a while, that piece of pizza, but how you filled yourself up from the start of the day is what gives you that sustaining power. Yeah. So I want to apply that here. If we can start to implement daily habits and routines that uplift you, that support you and sustain you and give you strength and peace in your life. Yes, the weeds always grow faster than the flowers. We know that in nature. We know that in our own hearts and minds. So what does that mean? That means that we show up for ourselves at the beginning of our day. It starts with the habits and the routines and it starts with simple things. It starts with nurturing mind, body, soul. So maybe that's getting up. It's having that big, tall glass of water. Maybe it's making sure your breakfast is the healthy, you know, your healthy, very intentional meal. It's making sure you do a gratitude walk. It can be five minutes. It's going outside and expressing gratitude for things you truly can be grateful for. One of my very favorite things to work on with people, and I'll tell you, it's one of the toughest for people who have experienced deep trauma is mirror work. It's doing positive affirmations and saying in the I am in the mirror. They're looking themselves in the eyes. We're so um, habituated in these patterns of looking in the mirror to make sure like we're not looking at ourselves. We're making sure our hair is done right. We're not making eye contact. And usually we're having a very critical lens because we're just trying to see what's wrong, minimizing that as much as possible and getting out the door. What I ask of people is to sit there and I want you to actually make eye contact with yourself. And I want you to say, I am smart. I am capable of change. I am healing. I am worthy. I am worthwhile. I am valuable. And going through just a couple of those things, it's going to feel very strange. It's going to feel very uncomfortable. I'll tell you, so many of my clients get stuck right there and it's really difficult for them. But when you start pouring in more good into your life that gives you more peace, that gives you more healing, that gives you a better perspective, that grounds you into there is hope, there is good things to be looking forward to. Some of your best days are still ahead of you. And they start actually believing that. 
you can just take off with that. Well, and I think, I think it's an important thing when you say that when they start believing it, I've heard people say, well, you need to believe it. I'm not sure that I agree with that. I mean, the reality is if someone were to come to me and say, Hey, Steve, how do I get into better shape? And I map out the details for them. Well, I don't believe that. I don't really give a shit at whether you believe it or not. The science is what it is. Yeah. Well, if you do those things, you're going to get into better shape. If you don't, you won't be. Your opinion doesn't matter. Piggybacking on that, I want to get your uh, perspective on my, what I call a very morbid. Uh, <laughs> give it to me. <laughs> very content, very happy state that I tend to live in. But it is very morbid. Okay. I don't know how much more life I have left in me. I'm 47 years old. And as I look at uh, my parents and, you know, my in-laws and uh, they're, they're coming into the sunset of their lives. And I think to myself, okay, maybe do, do I have 80 years in me? Do I have 90? Do I have a hundred? I don't know what that looks like, but I, if I'm, if I'm at a hundred, then I'm three years away from middle age. Right. So then I die. Well, when I die, what happens? There might be a few people that would show up to a funeral, right? If you look at the grander population of the world, most of them would not even know I'm dead because they don't even know I'm alive. When I'm dead, there are a few people that might show up to my funeral. Some people won't show up to my funeral because they don't care. Some people may have other obligations. They may be traveling. They may, something else may be there, right? A few weeks go by, a few months go by, and I may be thought of every once in a while by a few people, people that might be close to me, my kids, uh, maybe other people that I used to interact with from time to time. A year goes by, and I'm largely forgotten, except at certain moments, certain times. So the other day we were at the University of Utah football game and I love going to Utah football games. And I looked over at the uh, handicap section and I had a moment of sadness because my cousin who used to sit there in his wheelchair, he had cerebral palsy and I would see him there often. He passed away about a year and a half ago. And I only think of him every once in a while. That's the reality. I loved him dearly. I learned so much from him throughout our life that we shared together. But I still only think of him every once in a while. You fast forward 50 years, the house that I owned, the cars that I drove, the clothes that I wore are either gone or owned by someone else. And a hundred years later, no one knows who the hell I was. Now, that is a wonderful thought to me. It's extremely morbid, I get it. But what it tells me is that everything that I do in life, if I do it from the state of being integrous with what I want, what I believe, what I want to be known for inside of myself, pulls all of the external away. And just takes me back to the one thing that I have at the end of the day, and it's looking in my own eyes. It's looking and saying, do I like that person? Am I content with that person? Am I happy with that person? 
Sometimes the answer is no. Sometimes the answer is yes. But at the end of the day, if nobody's going to remember me in 100 years, then why the hell would I worry about most of the stuff that I worry about? Because most people are not even thinking about me. Tell me your perspective. I love that. I love so much about what you said. I actually, I actually don't think it's morbid. I actually think it's beautiful because, because then it it does help you return to you. And it's, well, if, if this is, this is what we're here for, you know, then, then, okay, what is the purpose of life? And I think especially with, you know, you know, our external beliefs about what happens after we die and if there's something there or not, or all these things are, they're interesting things to talk about. But what we do know for sure is being here now and being integrous with yourself. And one of the things that I love so much is when, when we live in authenticity and some people use that word and they're like, I'm authentic and I'm doing this. I'm like, okay, but I think authenticity in the way that I like to view it is when we're coming from our highest self, when we're coming from our highest self, we are blessing our lives and we are blessing other people's lives simply by choosing to be rising up, choosing to have this, this wanting to move the needle to be the best version of ourselves. And that doesn't mean being flashy. That doesn't mean you have to start your own podcast and have your own company and do all these things. Those are such beautiful and personal choices, but you get to be the difference of first yourself. You have to fill your own bucket up first, always. So that's creating self-love. That's creating, you know, being proud of who you are, those type of things. And that's cultivated through keeping our word to ourselves, through honoring ourselves. Like there's so many beautiful things, but then I do think when I look at the life around me and what I've lived, one thing that always stands out to me that I find really fascinating, you just talked about like a perspective that is very fascinating for you. I have found myself the giver and the receiver of humanity's best at different stages of my life. Mm-hmm. I have been at the bottom being carried or pushed up by other wonderful souls around me. And I have been in seasons of my life where I've been the one on top that have been extending a hand and supporting other people. And so when I think of what do I want the legacy of my life to be, again, no one probably is going to know who I am in 50 years after I die, 50, 100 years, right? Like your posterity has shifted and no one has memory of you. But so, so that brings me right here and now where it's, okay, if I have one more day, a year, 10 years, 20 years, whatever it's going to be, what is the thing that's going to spark joy in my life? And it's, it comes down to the one. I love that. I love that story of the little boy walking on the beach and throwing the starfish back in the ocean, you know, and you would love that story. I love that story. That sounds like the cheesy Uh, thing that you would have. But Steve, I love it so much because I have been the starfish in somebody's hand and I'm so grateful. And I just feel like if we can keep pouring goodness into this world, if we can make the difference for the one, I love what Oprah Winfrey says. She, you know, she grew up in a lot of trauma 
And, you know, people always ask her like, okay, like, what was your vision board? And like, did you know how to do all these things? And she's like, I didn't have any skills or knowledge and mindset and creativity. That was not part of my childhood experience. So how on earth did she get to where she is? Right. And it's, she said though, but every day I showed up and, and said to the universe, to God, like, use me, Mm. use me. And I just feel like if we can keep showing up, you like you have your power and your voice and your passion and things that you've really cultivated and magnified in your own life, you get to then in turn share that with the world. I have very unique gifts for me and that have been both, I think, what I was born with and also because of some of the difficult things I've been through, I've been refined in a way that that now is such a passion inside of me. And that's, that's how I want to give to the world is like from my unique voice, I'm not going to be everyone's cup of tea. I'm not going to be the best coach for everybody. And, but there are people that my specific perspective or the way that I view healing is going to be a blessing for in the same way for you. There's a very unique and beautiful way that you show up to masculinity and to healing and to mentorship within a female and a male community that's blessed so many people's life, myself included. And it's your sincere and unique signature and gift to the world. And you're showing up from that place. And I feel like that's what it's all about. Like, how do we make ourselves proud, our, our families proud, especially our children's proud of the people that we're being that's showing up to do the work. Men and women, I, I think, respond to coaching connection in different ways. And one of the things that you referenced earlier was that women tend to be more tribal in nature. Men tend to be more of the lone wolf and figure their stuff out on their own or one-on-one with someone else. I know as we talked earlier before the podcast, you had mentioned that you are going to be opening up a group for people that are working through some of the trauma, working through some of their challenges. Talk a little bit about that. Yeah, I think, Steve, I really appreciate the one-on-one approach, and I have found so much value on that. And some people really connect with that, whether it's just coaching or I do these coaching bodywork sessions that, you know, where we address where people are at and what they're going through and then we help work it through their bodies, things that physically feel locked up inside of them. But what I've noticed is that there is this place where people want to share. They want to have their stories heard. It's, it's part of why I did that fabulous female Friday, you know, a couple of years ago, those mini podcasts was I'm so invested in people's stories. And I feel like part of our human experiences is us being able to share. So I've created that I have a 12 week program and I've created it in a group setting. We're going to start in January, go through 12 weeks, and it's going to be weekly sessions, one, two sessions a week together in this, this pod, so to speak. And it's, you know, one session a week is our education. We're working through a specific theme of the week that people are studying and we're learning in our own time and then showing up. And then we're having a Q&A session. And that's where people get to come and they get to express themselves. They get to talk about where they are feeling stuck or what maybe their wins have been that week. And it's this really beautiful, safe space, this vulnerable space where people are able to come and bring all of them 
and feel that support and that community as they're doing their own individual work. So that's how I get to implement the group aspect for the people that it speaks to and calls to, and it will be for men and women and all are invited and, and welcomed. But that's the approach is knowing that your story is valuable and what you've been through matters. And also you have a whole group of people that are cheering for you and championing you and wanting to be there for you as you commit to this progression and this healing journey that you're on. I'm not sure that this is factual or correct, but I think the first time I learned this statement, it opened my eyes and it's something that I've observed often throughout my life. Stephen R. Covey years ago said that aside from food, water, and shelter and the basic physical needs that we have, that the number one need that a human being has is to be understood. That's why empathy is so important. And sometimes sharing your story with other people can help you to realize that your story is not what you think it was. And getting that echolocation, so to speak, of sharing it with other people can give you a different perspective on your story. Stories we tell ourselves are powerful. They are what push us forward or keep us stuck. So I love the fact that you're opening this up to people so that they can share their stories with others and provide a space that allows for that empathy. Yeah. Kim, talk a little bit as we start to come to the end and wrap this up about what you're personally doing to disrupt and evolve. <laughs> That's a good one because I have literally, if you guys don't know, Steve and I have known each other for a long time and we've been able to rub shoulders in many different capacities, one of which has been Steve being my own coach in working through some of my physical things. And then when I think of disrupt, I literally can visualize Steve texting me and telling me that I have to physically go out my door and do sprints outside and physically disrupt what's going on in my body and in my soul and my healing journey. And so every time I think of that, Steve, and I'm so grateful for you, when I think of disrupt, it does to me, it's taking myself out of a habitual habit or pattern or something that's not serving me in this space and time. It's pumping flesh, sorry, fresh blood and oxygen into my mind and into my body. And so I, like we had talked about, there is a whole mind, body, soul connection. So how are we disrupting? It's infusing and bringing positive things into my life. And so one of mine has been choosing like physical movement that really serves and works with me to get my body going. And when I feel stuck, I have to do something for me. It's walks are my big thing. And I always go out and I have a gratitude walk because if I can choose gratitude perspective, it, it puts a different lens on what I'm working on, whether it's something in my business or my personal life or my home life or parenthood or any of those things, I'm feeling stuck or having resistance or I can't quite figure out what my next steps are. Not necessarily what the end income is or the end outcome is, but it's like, what are my next steps? The clarity comes by first expressing gratitude and getting my body moving. I increase my heart rate. My breathing gets really dialed in. 
you know, and I start shifting those things and expressing, outputting gratitude. And literally, if you were one of my neighbors, you'd probably laugh because most of the time I'm saying it out loud as I'm walking. You're one <laughs> you know, of those people. I'm one of those people, but because there's a physical aspect to it. And I like my body, like my, the words coming out of my mouth. And again, it just grounds me. And then if I can go in and then discuss or, or, you know, journal or write down the things that, um, I'm wanting to move the needle on, like what my goals are and kind of come back to my why, my why, my why for different things. And then I add, I, I end it. And this part I got from another coach I worked with where she, at the very end of kind of her process, she says, what are my, um, oh God, I now I want to say it just perfectly, but it's inspired actions. What are my next actions? What are my next steps? And then I can move forward on the things like and the that. goals that I have, because, you know, I feel like there's these, these two schools of thoughts. There's the, there's the put it on a vision board and you manifest it into coming and it's all the universe is, you know, all these things, which I love. I'm such a hippie and I love all that stuff. And then there's the get out and work. It. If you want yeah. bigger muscles, you're lifting the weights every day. It's but, more of my style. Yeah. Which is definitely more your style. I see so much beauty in the marriage of both those concepts because I do think there are things we do have to work through and like process um, and, you know, check in our intention. I do think the power of intention is, is, is huge, yeah, but if we're agree. not, if we're not aligning it with a change in behavior and action, like you can dream all day long that you'll have X, Y, and Z. Most likely it won't fall into your lap. Abs don't happen from thinking about it. Yeah. You gotta, you know, you gotta show up to that. So I love the marriage of those two things. And those are things I try to implement in my own life and my own journey, because you guys, whether you're a therapist or you're a coach or you're, you know, a leader, we're all human and we're all on our own journeys and we're implementing these tools right alongside of everybody else. And so showing up to the things in our own life and moving the needle in the season and the things that we're being called upon to face, I think is just the journey of this life. And it, and it requires us to show up in full form with both of those things to create the life and the perspective of our life to find joy in each and every chapter. Of, Beautiful. Yeah. Beautiful. Well, Kim Wells, thank you so much. I think uh, great wisdom that you have shared with our listeners today. And on that note, folks, it is time for us to wrap up another episode of The Evolved Man. Kim, thanks again for coming on, sharing your knowledge and wisdom with our amazing listeners. Uh, if people want to connect with you, learn more about all the amazing stuff that you're doing, what's the best way for them to get a hold of you? One of two ways, find me at kimwellscoaching.com or on Instagram, kimwellscoaching. Just slide into my DMs. I have my information. A lot of my information is on there, but you can book a 30-minute consulting call just free of charge. We can talk about the program and see what your needs are and see if we're a good fit. Love that. And folks, hey, remember, it does take time and consistency to evolve. But first, you have to disrupt. And now it's time for you to get out there and evolve. Thanks for joining me today for this episode of The Evolved Man. If you're learning from and gaining value from this podcast, please subscribe to The Evolved Man newsletter, where I can support you even more in your personal evolution. I want to help you reverse engineer your success. The Evolved Man newsletter is like getting a free coaching session. 
to keep you moving forward on your path of personal success. Go to the evolvedmanpodcast.com to sign up today. If you found value in this episode, you can give us up to a five-star rating on Apple and Spotify and share it with your network. That's the best way to support the podcast so we can continue to get great guests and provide you with the best wisdom for your daily life. Until next time, keep evolving.